G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. We took a month off to recharge the batteries and give you all time to catch up. Give us uh, time to get ready for a fresh start. We're challenging a new season of the podcast. Now we're back and we're ready to dive deep to Genesis chapter 5. Yeah, that's right, Chris. This season's going to be huge and Genesis 5 isn't for the faint-hearted. It's a tough nut to crack. I'm not going to beat around the bush. There's lots to talk about. So let's begin with a quick summary of what we've read so far before we begin our reading of Genesis 5. Oh, but before I forget, I should just mention, in case you haven't heard already, that I took the time to do a little bit of an update to the website, giantanswers.com, and you will now find that there's a very handy new feature. I finally added search functionality to the page, so now you can search for whatever you want, and I've addressed it in the podcast or blog about it. You're going to get those results so you can more easily find answers to your giant questions. That is a great idea. So if our listeners have a question about something they vaguely remember from a podcast episode months ago, they can just search it up instead of trying to remember which episode it was in. Yeah, so if you haven't already, make sure you check that out and avail yourself of a fantastic resource, which includes a searchable archive of every podcast episode by topic and all the material that's up on the blog and it's all your fingertips. Uh, and as usual, don't forget that if you can't find what you're looking for, there are probably other people with the same question as you. So just ask. There's a contact form on the website homepage. You can send me a question. You don't have to leave your real name or anything. I'm not keeping your data or selling it or something. But as they say, you don't have because you don't ask. So if you want an answer to your giant question, send it in. On a more serious note, uh, I just want to acknowledge the passing of the great Dr. Michael Heiser. Yes, I, I heard about that and I instantly thought of you, Tim. Sad news indeed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for those who hadn't heard, or, well, I don't know where you've been if you haven't heard by now, but uh, recently Dr. Heiser stopped receiving treatment for cancer and in the weeks that followed, in the presence of his loved ones, he went from this world into the unseen realm to be with the Lord. He's already sorely missed. Uh, obviously, because I live in Australia, I never got the chance to meet him in person, but anyone can see that he's had an enormous impact on my life and work. Our thoughts and prayers are with his family and friends at this time. Hopefully Mike's passing has had the effect of emboldening those whom he has inspired to spread the word about the importance of Bible study and not shying away from those difficult parts of Scripture. As he always said, if it's in the Bible and it's weird, it's probably important. Speaking of weird things, and now that I have, in fact, beaten around said bush, as is my want, uh, let's get back to our 5,000-foot overview of what we've learned so far. We saw that Genesis 1 was a story which explained that God set everything in order to prepare the cosmos as his temple. So this was not an attempt to explain the origin of matter, but an explanation of the order that God has established in the world and its purpose. Again, this doesn't mean that God did not create everything in a material sense, but as I always say, you have the New Testament to explain that, because in the cultural context of the Greek-speaking world, material concerns were important by then. But prior to that, in the time of ancient Israel, there was no concern with material origins, and Genesis 1 does not concern itself with addressing that question. As we went through Genesis 2 and 3, we learned that mankind was set apart for a specific purpose, to represent God throughout the world and to maintain its order. We came to recognise that the inherent selfishness of humankind is really where we start when we talk about this sin nature and that kind of thing. So we don't get to blame God or any other supernatural entities or divine beings for our sinful tendencies or the origins of them. It really amounts to moral failure on our part, only on the basis that God has created us for a higher calling than simply looking out for number one. 
We saw that the attempt of mankind to achieve self-determination ultimately resulted in failure and exile from sacred space, the Holy Land. Indeed, and things only got worse from there, didn't they? They certainly did. Genesis 4 presented us with the decline of humanity following the fall of man, beginning with the dispute between Cain and Abel, and culminating in a desperate cry to God in the hope that he would save them from the violence and tyranny of the kings. We saw some allusions to the divine agents that contributed to their depravity and violence as we examined the family of Cain's descendant Lamech. As we went through the first three chapters of Genesis, we looked in varying degrees of detail and an assortment of different Mesopotamian texts, which present ideas that the Bible interacts with. We talked about various Mesopotamian and also Canaanite creation myths, and we discussed stories like Adapa and the South Wind. But you might have been wondering why we went through the entire discussion of Genesis 4 without bringing up any ancient source material as comparative literature. You know what, Tim, I was just wondering why we went through the entire discussion of Genesis 4 without bringing up any ancient source material as comparative literature. It's been bothering me for months. You know what, Chris, it's funny you should say that. Now, we didn't talk about this last season because I really wanted us to be focused on the story that the Bible is telling in Genesis 4. But there is an ancient Near Eastern parallel to the story of Cain and Abel. It's called The Dispute Between Sheep and Grain. This is a Sumerian creation myth from the 3rd millennium BC. You can already tell from the title that there's some parallel here to the Cain and Abel story, where the protagonists are connected to growing crops and raising cattle or sheep. I thought you were going to say that it's because Cain rhymes with grain. Uh, sadly, no, that only works in an English translation, not the original languages, although I am informed reliably that the rain in Spain falls mainly on the Estepa, or if you're an ancient Sumerian, the Eden. I'll take your word for it. It begins in a similar manner to Genesis 2, where we have the original setting devoid of agriculture in the place where heaven and earth meet. The Anuna gods create sheep and grain, two personified aspects of human civilization. And even though this text talks about the creation of certain elements of the story, it doesn't present a material origin of them. Before sheep are created, they're already mentioned in the text. Before mankind is created, he's already mentioned in the text. This is functional creation, which, as we've already mentioned, is the dominant paradigm of the ancient Near East. And if you want to know more about that, I could say I've already covered that in season one of the podcast, so go back and listen. But instead, I'm now going to say, just jump on the website, giantanswers.com, and put creation in the search bar, and you'll find out everything I have to say about that. So there you go. I'll give you a little bit of a quote from the translation of the myth of sheep and grain to set the scene. Just a little extract. This comes from the introductory portion of it. And it says, The people of those days did not know about eating bread. They did not know about wearing clothes. They went about with naked limbs in the land. Like sheep, they ate grass with their mouths and drank water from the ditches. At that time, at the place of the gods' formation, in their own home, on the holy mound, they created sheep and grain. Having gathered them in the divine banqueting chamber, the Anuna gods of the holy mound partook of the bounty of sheep and grain, but were not sated. The Anuna gods of the holy mound partook of the sweet milk of their holy sheepfold, but were not sated. For their own well-being in the holy sheepfold, they gave them to mankind as sustenance. At that time, Enki spoke to Enlil. Father Enlil, now sheep and grain have been created on the holy mound. Let us send them down from the holy mound. 
Enki and Enlil having spoken their holy word, sent sheep and grain down from the holy mound. All right, so I'll leave it there. Uh, so the idea is that with these two essential components of civilization having been established, they're now given to mankind because the Anuna gods needed mankind to multiply the use of sheep and grain in order to be able to bring enough to satisfy the appetites of the Anuna gods. So this ties into the ancient way of thinking among the pagans where the humans had an obligation to feed the gods and the gods in turn would bless the land to bring fertility and that kind of thing in order to sustain the people. So these Anuna gods, are they the equivalent to what the Bible calls the sons of God in Genesis 6? Yeah, that's right. The story is presented as a debate over which of the two sisters, not brothers, is the greatest. After a lot of back and forth, Enki decides that grain should be superior and is called the winner of the debate. Sheep gets made subservient to grain. Where we see some interesting parallels with Genesis 4 is in that grain is spoken of as having connections to kingship, to royalty, to warfare, to a storm god with connections to grain and fertility, and to the subjugation of the people of the land, all of which we see in the story and the person of Cain, whereas sheep is connected to priestly functions and is seen as contributing to the greatness of the kingship, which we saw expressed in the biblical Abel. Many of those elements have been obscured in our English translation, but that's why we need to read the text closely. And again, if you want more detail on that, you'll need to go through last season's episodes on Cain and Abel. You might remember also, as we discussed, the way that the author of Hebrews spoke about the faith of Abel. We saw how the offering brought by Abel formed something of Abel's identity and told us a lot about him. And as we read the myth of sheep and grain, we find that these elements are personified as characters in the story. So there's some consistency in the interpretation of these narratives. Obviously, the victory of grain over sheep is reflected in the biblical Cain having killed his brother, the shepherd. So in both stories, we're shown the victory of tyrannical kingship over the priestly concern with the welfare of the people and the gods. So the question is, why are we talking about this when we are supposed to be introducing Genesis 5? Okay, so what the myth of sheep and grain established for us is that it was the Anunnaki who introduced these elements of civilization and gave them to mankind. We saw the biblical parallel to that concept in the trees of the Garden of Eden. And these are the first of the gifts of civilization bestowed upon humanity, which is a theme that gets expanded on in other stories from Mesopotamia. The Anunnaki are shown to have this intrinsic connection to the kingship, and we have various ancient texts that outline those connections as a means of legitimizing the kingship and its ancient ties to whichever regime was presently in power at the time of writing. The idea is that the most ancient things were considered the most valuable and most sacred. So if you wanted your reign as king to be considered authoritative, you had to make connections back to the ancient past to show that your kingship was established by divine decree from ancient times. For ancient Mesopotamians, kingship was a gift that was brought down from heaven, which is expressed in the myth of sheep and grain as coming down from the holy mound. The myth of sheep and grain functions as a story that places priority on kingship as the most important and the oldest of all divine institutions given to mankind, and to be prioritised over those things that make the kingship great, including priestly functions, where Genesis 4 presented considerable agreement in thematic terms with that Sumerian myth. It very clearly portrayed the matter in a negative light, emphasising the inability of kingship without the blessing of God to result in a lasting legacy that would benefit mankind and bring order to the world as intended. Yeah, that definitely came through loud and clear, Genesis 4. So now what? 
So now what we're going to see in Genesis 5 is a statement that completely shuts down the narrative coming from Babylon by emphasizing the value of obedience to God and following his commandment like a sheep following a shepherd. The genealogy of Genesis 5 is going to connect the first man with a subsequent man who will obey God and bring about a true legacy of faithfulness that will survive beyond the great flood. Genesis 5 is by no means disconnected from the flood narrative, nor is it disconnected from the preceding chapter to which it functions as a response. All of this comes together to paint a much larger picture, and all of this is directed at the people of God as a story intended to remind them that self-determination, the neglect of their obligations toward God, and the oppression of their brothers is what got them into the mess that they found themselves in during the Babylonian exile. So with that as a bit of background, let's now have a look at the biblical text. I'm going to read through Genesis 5 in its entirety. And just for something different, I'm going to read this from the Hebrew names version. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in God's likeness. He created them male and female and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. Adam lived 130 years and became the father of a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Shet. The days of Adam after he became the father of Shet were 800 years and he became the father of sons and daughters. All the days that Adam lived were 930 years, then he died. Shet lived 105 years and became the father of Enosh. Shet lived after he became the father of Enosh 807 years and became the father of sons and daughters. All the days of Sheth were 912 years, then he died. Enosh lived 90 years and became the father of Kenan. Enosh lived after he became the father of Kenan, 815 years, and became the father of sons and daughters. All the days of Enosh were 905 years, then he died. Kenan lived 70 years and became the father of Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he became the father of Mahalalel. 840 years, and became the father of sons and daughters, and all the days of Kenan were 910 years, then he died. Mahalalel lived 65 years and became the father of Yered. Mahalalel lived after he became the father of Yered, 830 years, and became the father of sons and daughters. All the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, then he died. Yered lived 162 years and became the father of Hanoch. Yered lived after he became the father of Hanoch, 800 years, and became the father of sons and daughters. All the days of Yered were 962 years, then he died. Hanoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Hanoch walked with God after he became the father of Methuselah, 300 years, and became the father of sons and daughters. All the days of Hanoch were 365 years. Hanoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Methuselah lived 187 years and became the father of Lamech. Methuselah lived after he became the father of Lamech 782 years and became the father of sons and daughters. All the days of Methuselah were 969 years, then he died. Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son, and he named him Noah, saying, This same will comfort us in our work and in the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. Lamech lived after he became the father of Noah, 595 years, and became the father of sons and daughters. All the days of Lamech 
was 777 years, then he died. Noach was 500 years old, and Noach became the father of Shem, Ham, and Yefet. That's a lot of numbers. It sure is. So, yeah, that's our reading from Genesis 5. Incidentally, that last verse about Noah is included in verse 1 of Genesis 6, if you're reading the Septuagint. This is the beginning of the second in a series of 10 stories that comprise the book of Genesis that in Hebrew are called Toledot. As I mentioned before, that word means something like that which proceeds from. This occasion is unique because it's the only one that gives us the book of the Toledot. That particular phrasing is going to become very important as we continue through this text. So today we're introducing you to Genesis 5, and specifically we're going to tackle the number one question posed by this text, at least to our ears as Western listeners, and that is the question of the ages of the patriarchs listed in this chapter. Were they really that old? That really is a burning question, isn't it? Nobody reads Genesis 5 and comes away from that like, great story! But what I really don't understand is why Lamech is the only guy who has anything to say in this whole chapter. Yeah, that's true. Good point about Lamech there too. But yeah, the long ages thing dominates the discussion on Genesis 5. It's kind of unfortunate for many of us who've grown up with a simplistic answer to this question, which basically says, well, you know, God is God and he can do whatever he wants. So if he wants people to live for a long time, then he can do that. Basically, it's just a lot easier to take it at face value, and nobody can refute that because God can do whatever. That's the position that Martin Luther arrived at. Of course, we understand that Martin Luther was a product of his time, where others were similarly keen to adopt a very straightforward literal reading of the text from what we now call a materialist perspective. For some people, this even goes as far as necessitating a flat-earth cosmological model understood literally in order to be able to maintain that literalism on the numbers in Genesis 5. It's not difficult to find people who actually believe that the dome of the firmament was a sheet of ice that encased and pressurized the Earth's atmosphere in order to stimulate increased growth and longevity. If you've been listening to this show since the first season, you know quite well that the literal flat Earth model does not have a leg to stand on. And if you haven't heard those episodes yet, I would suggest that you head to my website, search for those episodes, you'll find them. It seems like there's uh, a lot of people out there who appeal to flat Earth theory whenever it gets hard to deal with the words on the page. Yes, sad but true. Uh, It's also common to hear people suggest things like some kind of genetic theory, which relies on the idea of genetic purity. This idea basically says that since everything had only just been created and everything was in a perfectly pure genetic state, that's why people lived long ages and animals were bigger and all that kind of thing. This is obviously a young earth creationist model. It's definitely creation ex nihilo and clearly relying on modern knowledge of DNA and that kind of thing, which obviously wouldn't have worked at the time. So... If that's your view, then you have to ask yourself a question. How are ancient people supposed to get that message? And the simple answer is that they didn't because that wasn't being communicated by the author. So if it turns out that God actually created the world a very long time before our story begins, then none of these answers are going to prove satisfactory as far as explaining why a certain number of ancient people should live to ridiculously long ages. And at this point, the people who like those theories are probably suggesting that I'm in favour of evolution or denying the supernatural or saying that God couldn't do what God wanted for some reason. You know, like, I don't know, therefore God is somehow a legitimate argument. This is why we have problems with atheists. I mean, they see through that thinking really fast and we should too. But I really think that nothing could be further from the truth. The, the problem with all these attempts at saying that it's just so because it's just so is that they don't have any explanatory power. They don't convey any meaning at all. They just let this weird thing in the text just sit there and be weird without actually providing us with anything meaningful. 
It reduces scripture to a historical record and then tries to claim that it's still God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Mm, so it gives no benefit to believers and makes no sense to atheists either. Yeah, that's right. Not that the Bible was written for atheists anyway. There are probably more views out there that use some other means to defend a straightforward, literal, modern reading of Genesis 5, but I think that'll give you an idea of some of the more common ones, particularly in modern Western culture. And then you find some approaches that are slightly less than literal. You'll hear people say that they weren't really years, but months being listed in Genesis 5. Well, dividing those ages by 12 might be a good way to bring them down to more realistic numbers until you realise that you've got guys like Enoch having children of their own at five years old. So that clearly doesn't work. Then you have people saying, well, this is just some kind of a literary convention. Everybody knows about the Sumerian king list and the really long ages of the kings there, which went for thousands of years. So this is just the author of Genesis ripping that off or making fun of it. You're not supposed to take that seriously. Uh, then you get into some more creative ideas. One theory involves the numbers correlating to Babylonian star charts to show the procession of the planets in the night sky. Ooh, that sounds interesting. Could we look at that? Sure, why not? There are so many possibilities out there and the, the sheer number of interpretive options is almost as mind-boggling as the numbers themselves. Uh, you know, then there are questions like, how are we supposed to read the numbers? What was the purpose of including them in the first place? And why is it that different manuscript traditions give us different numbers in many cases throughout Genesis 5? And where the numbers are different from one manuscript to another, which numbers are authoritative? Yeah, I hadn't thought about that before. Mm, so we're presented with the generations that proceeded from Adam in a particular line that extends all the way to Noah, who will, of course, be the protagonist of the story that follows, which is the flood. I've mentioned before that the purpose of genealogy is to tell a story through connection between the first character and the last, and that raises the question of what kind of story is being told through this particular genealogy. I've kind of spoiled it already by reminding you of that fact, because there are many people that view Genesis 5 as some kind of objective historical record rather than a narrative structure. For them, the facts and figures presented by Genesis 5 are historical artefacts that need to be evaluated scientifically in order to arrive at the truth being presented in the scriptures. We're going to look at something like that now. I'm going to give you a quote from an article that was published online by Answers in Genesis. The article is called The Antediluvian Patriarchs and the Sumerian King List. It was written by Raul Lopez and originally published in Journal of Creation, Volume 12, Number 3, that was December 1998. Uh, but before I read the quote from that article, I want to quickly talk about Babylonian mathematics and the sexagesimal system, for those who are not familiar with it. Uh, that would include me. Did you say the sexy gerbil system? No, I said sexagesimal. Sexagesimal? Sarah Michelle Geller? I don't know what you're saying. Nah. <laughs> okay. Uh, today in the Western world, we use a decimal system for numerical calculations. That means we work stuff out in terms of multiples of 10, Okay, decimal comes from the Latin decima, based on tenths. We start with 10 to the power of zero, or as we know it, the number one. Then we have 10 itself, multiples of 10. We also use multiples of 10 squared, or hundreds, 10 cubed, or thousands, etc. For ancient Sumerians, the way that they did things was to use powers of 60. So the number 60 was considered the perfect number from which everything else was derived. That's why we call it a sexagesimal system. Again, it's Latin for based on sixtieths. So they would have a unit representing one, another for 10, another which is 60, another one representing 10 times 60, then 60 squared or 3,600. 
as a single numerical unit. They even had a symbol for 60 to the power of 3, which is 36,000. Each numerical value was represented by a symbol impressed on a clay tablet. How about this? I think you get a kick out of this. Uh, we, we count on our fingers, right? Using two hands, we can count to 10. The ancient Babylonians could count to 60. And no, that doesn't mean they had weird hands. If you look at your four fingers on one hand, you have three sections to each finger, right, the bits between the knuckles. You can use the three sections of your four fingers to count to 12. Your thumb isn't included because your thumb's doing the counting on your fingers. Try it yourself. Using your other hand, you would count five multiples of the 12 that you count on the first hand. So in other words, if you're counting to 12 on your left hand, once you arrive at 12, you'd then use a finger on your right hand to indicate that you've counted to 12 once, and then you're starting over again on your left hand. Count to 12 a second time, and this is how you get multiples of 12. You can count as far as 60 by that means. In fact, you could go even further if you want to use the individual sections of your finger rather than whole fingers to do your multiples of 12. So doing the maths, that would mean you can count to 144 or do your complete 12 times table on your fingers. Pretty cool, huh? Yeah, that's pretty impressive, I've got to say. Were there other civilizations that used that system? Nope, although the Greeks did adopt it for astronomy, but not for other aspects of daily life. Anyway, the Babylonians used the base 60 system because the number 60 is divisible by so many other numbers, it makes for really convenient calculations. 60 can be divided by the numbers 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 10, 12, 15, 20, and 30. I suppose you can divide by itself too, 60. It works just as well expressed as fractions, with the result being that the fractions end up being whole numbers themselves. The reason that we have 60 seconds in a minute and 60 minutes in an hour is due to the influence of the Babylonian system of keeping time. You have 360 degrees in a circle, which is again a multiple of 60. This was a Babylonian invention. This was all worked out by doing astronomical calculations on the movement of the stars relative to the position of an observer on the Earth. And that's why the Babylonians were able to understand that the world was indeed a globe. This is why 60 was considered to be such a perfect number, because it was shown to be able to account for the workings of all kinds of things, not only in the heavens, but on the earth. So now that I've got that out of the way, you should be able to follow along with me. I'm going to read you the abstract for that article from Answers in Genesis. So that's what it says. The Sumerian king list records the lengths of reigns of the kings of Sumer. The initial section deals with kings before the flood, and is significantly different from the rest. When the kingdom durations of the antediluvian section are expressed in an early sexagesimal numerical system, all durations except for two are expressed as multiples of 60 squared. A simple tally of the ciphers used yields six, 10 times 60 squared signs, six 60 squared signs, and six 60 signs. The lives of the biblical patriarchs, however, have a precision of one year, if Adam and Noah are not included, as in the king list, and the lives of the patriarchs are similarly rounded to two digits or to the nearest ten. The sum of the lives has six ten-cubed signs, six ten-squared signs, and six ten signs. In addition, if the number representing the sum of the ages was wrongly assumed as having been written in the sexagesimal system, the two totals become numerically equivalent. It is suggested that the Sumerian scribe that composed the original antediluvian list had available a document, possibly a clay tablet, 
containing numerical information on the ages of eight of the patriarchs, similar to that of the Genesis record, and that he mistakenly interpreted it as being written in the sexagesimal system. That the two documents are numerically related is strong evidence for the historicity of the book of Genesis. The fact that the Sumerian account shows up as a numerically rounded, incomplete version of the Genesis description, lacking the latter's moral and spiritual depth, is a strong argument for the accuracy, superiority and primacy of the biblical record. In addition, the parallels between the Sumerian and biblical antediluvian data open up the possibility of establishing chronological correlations between the rest of the King's List and the book of Genesis. Right, so that's the end of the quote. There's some really interesting stuff in there which we're going to have to unpack, and we'll be testing some of the claims made in this paper. Basically, according to this writer, the Genesis account is based on the original source from which this information was derived. He's basically claiming that the Babylonians referred to the same data, but made the incorrect assumption that the numbers were to be calculated using the base 60 numerical system, which gives much larger numerical values for the data provided. But how could that even happen? Didn't they notice that the numbers were different? How could you end up getting confused between 100 and 3,600? I mean, they're a little bit different. Yeah, you would think that, wouldn't you? Um, this is made possible by the fact that certain people groups used cuneiform script to write number signs in a decimal format using signs that appear identical to those used in the sexagesimal system. In other words, what looks like a 10 in decimal format also looks like a 60 in the sexagesimal format. What looks like 100 in the decimal format also looks like 3,600 in the sexagesimal format. It's just a symbol on a bit of clay and so it goes on. Remember this was all written in cuneiform script, not with numerals like what we have, okay? So they're just using a piece of reed or a particularly shaped stick to basically press indents into soft clay. They're not writing numbers as we know them. Because these different people groups spoke and wrote the same language, you couldn't even tell which counting system was being employed on the basis of the language around the numbers. That's quite a problem to have. Yeah, I can see how that would be really confusing. The argument goes that since the data could be represented in multiples of particular signs used to denote numerical values, and it's possible to represent both the Sumerian and biblical accounts using the same number of signs for each given value, adding up to numerically equivalent totals, there must be a clear relationship between the two manuscripts. And the only major discrepancy between them is the fact that the Sumerian account is expressed in the sexagesimal format and the biblical account appears to be expressed in the decimal format. You might be wondering how anyone could arrive at the idea that the Genesis account could possibly have had chronological priority. In other words, it came first rather than the Babylonian material. Everyone knows that the Sumerian king list existed long before any biblical document that we know about. So this viewer is going to have to argue that there was some prior version of the text that agrees with Genesis 5, recorded long before anyone can prove it, and also predating the Sumerian king list. But we don't have any proof of that? No, we don't. The, the argument presented in favour of this view is the idea that since the Genesis account features more detailed information, and the general trend in data transmission is a loss of data over time rather than an accumulation, that would indicate that the more complete record, being the Genesis account, should naturally have come first. Because we have extra people on the list and we have whole numbers rather than rounded numbers and that kind of thing. So 
That basically appeals to a well-known and time-honoured trend of documents being passed down over long periods of time and becoming more simplified in later versions as they lose extraneous data so that the original can be shown as the one which has the most information and is considered the most complete. While the latest versions tend to be quite simplified and lacking in detail, and that's quite well attested across the field of archaeology and textual criticism in general, so it doesn't need to be defended with any great vigour. Most commentators are going to be quite receptive to this idea because it would be unusual to have a historical record accumulating more detail over time without some original basis from which to extract that information. However, it is quite novel indeed to have this principle applied to something as well known as the Sumerian King List, given what we know about the composition of this text in comparison to the relatively late records that we have concerning Genesis 5. There's nothing in the biblical corpus that can be reliably dated to any time prior to the 14th century BC. And as you're aware, I refer frequently to the exilic period or sometime immediately following as being the most likely period in which the final form of the primeval history was received. That doesn't mean that I don't believe it draws upon earlier sources. So the question of priority between these two documents is going to be something we'll have to address and we'll come back to that later. But there's more to talk about. We also have to talk about the fact that these numbers need to be manipulated in order to show these correspondences. What do you mean by that? Well, the author of this paper talks about needing to round off the numbers provided in the Genesis account in order to get a correlation with the Sumerian text. How do we do that? Are we allowed to fudge the figures in order to show something that we want to prove? Or is there some other way to demonstrate a correlation that doesn't do violence to the text of Scripture? Or do we have to stand our ground on the biblical numbers and say that since they require manipulation to match the Sumerian account and we're not prepared to do that, then we must say that as tantalising as it is to see a correlation which looks very, very close to the data we have, we just can't sustain that correlation in view of the finer details of the text. These are not simple questions to answer. Another thing we need to consider is the fact that there are different versions of the Sumerian King List from different periods using different styles of writing. This could easily have a bearing on the interpretation of the data. So we need to be careful that we're aware of which textual tradition the data came from. And I'll give you a little spoiler here. This article that I just quoted from does not interact with the other forms of the King List, except to show differences in writing style. Nothing's mentioned about differences in numerical values represented. But that issue is not restricted to the Sumerian king list because the other textual tradition that has variant readings is, of course, the biblical one. And I mentioned this earlier, there, there isn't just one record of Genesis 5 because we have the Septuagint and the Samaritan Pentateuch in addition to the Masoretic text. There's no mention of those variants in this article either. Nor do we find any mention of extra-biblical accounts that agree with Genesis 5 numerically. The other thing that you'll notice in this abstract is the fact that the author works on the assumption that the Sumerian king list uses the base 60 system in error as the result of a scribe reading an original text that used base 10 and making the assumption that he was reading a base 60 text. This is probably the weakest point of the argument in favour of this view because it basically relies on the assumption that somebody else's assumption was incorrect. That doesn't make it impossible, but it certainly sounds implausible. But again, we're going to look at that in more detail later. And another interesting observation that I picked up in this abstract is the claim to the moral superiority of the Genesis text. I'm not sure that Genesis 5 is actually making much in the way of moral or spiritual claims, but I just thought it was odd to throw that in there without any substantiating data. And the last claim made by this paper that I find slightly amusing is the notion that since the Sumerian numbers are so much larger than the numbers provided in Genesis 5, they're less realistic 
than the biblical numbers and therefore less reliable. I guess I think that's kind of funny because I don't care if you live to be 28,800 years old or only 777 years old, you're not going to convince me that either of those numbers are close to what I should consider factually accurate from a scientific standpoint. So anyway, that's, that's a bit of an introduction to one view of this question around how we should understand the long ages of Genesis 5, and that's a question that I don't think we can divorce from the overall meaning of the entire passage. It looks like the main point of this article, at least as I understand it, is to provide something of a pushback against those who would claim that the biblical authors were simply copying a Babylonian text in order to make their own narrative sound authoritative. So from the point of view of answers in Genesis, it's the biblical account that's authoritative and the Babylonian account that is derivative, not the other way around. Take that, internet atheists. I should probably mention that the major source used by the author of this article for answers in Genesis is actually Dr. John Walton. Now, I'm not sure if Walton's views are represented accurately in this article. Walton actually holds some views that answers in Genesis probably aren't that fond of. But anyway, I've already given you a few of my thoughts in brief on this perspective, and I think my main criticism of this view is that it does nothing to give the text any real power to speak to its first audience about anything that mattered. In fact, the audience of Scripture wouldn't have even seen those correspondences because the text is designed to be read aloud by a scribe and listened to by its audience. The form that we have doesn't even use numerals or signs to represent numerical values. Scripture is expressed only in words. So the audience is going to hear those words, but they're not going to see a neat little chart laid out in front of them with comparative signs showing numerical values so they can compare the Babylonian text to their own. That means that the text of Genesis 5, if we're to take this claim presented by answers in Genesis seriously, has little value, if any, to the common man and was only significant to the elite class of the scribes. In order to get the point being made by a comparison of the two king lists, you would need to be educated in both reading and writing and mathematics, not to mention comparative literature studies. You'd have to be able to read the Babylonian material as well. It'd be fair to assume that of all the people brought into captivity during the exile, only a handful, if we're being generous, would have possessed the skill set to be able to understand this text in that way. That is a very good point. Now, I'm the last person to claim that the Bible should be able to be understood by little children down to the last detail. You've got all kinds of things in Scripture that require an educated and intelligent mind to make any sense of. You've only got to read the book of Revelation to see that. But to think that Genesis 5, a foundational chapter and a crucial explanatory portion of one of the most significant books in all of Scripture, should be written in such a way that only an esoteric minority could have any hope of understanding it, it's ridiculous. You know what happens to texts that nobody can understand or make sense of? They get thrown away and forgotten about. They don't get preserved for thousands of years in the hope that somebody will come along at the tail end of the 20th century and suddenly explain it all. The text had to mean something to its first audience. And even if that text relies on an earlier source, it isn't the early source that we claim is inspired and authoritative. It's the received word of God. And what we've received are words, not numbers or signs. To be clear, I'm not arguing that the text of Genesis 5 should only be read in a simple, straightforward manner without appeal to any kind of particular knowledge. And that's the kind of thinking that leads to guys like Archbishop James Usher, who dated the initial act of creation to the entrance of the night preceding the 23rd of October in the year of the Julian calendar 710, uh, which ends up being something like 4004 BC. That's how we end up with young Earth creationists telling us that the Earth's only 6,000 years old. If you've already listened to the entire first season of my podcast and you're still listening now, then you know that I don't think those calculations are worth the paper they were printed on. 
it's clearly evident that the world is far older than that. But again, that's what comes from the kind of assumption that says a little kid should be able to pick up the Bible and understand it thoroughly. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Scripture is not simple. But I've also said that Scripture ought to be understandable by its intended audience, and that is a hill upon which I shall die. Alternatively, we could consider that the audience of this text is not the people of Judah brought into exile, but rather the Babylonians themselves. Because at least for a Babylonian hearing the Genesis 5 account, they would be able to visualize those numbers, and it would become apparent to them that their own accounts were greatly exaggerated by comparison, assuming that they were familiar with Semitic decimal notation. Well, if you think you can find me anyone who can demonstrate that Genesis 5 was written with a Babylonian audience in mind, I'll get a bag of rocking horse manure to sell you at a great price. I'm telling you now, that is simply not happening. Yeah, that really does seem unlikely. If that's the only way that this view makes sense, then it doesn't make sense at all. Yeah, so now we've had an interpretation from the right-wing conservative evangelical American post-Reformation point of view. Let's see what happens when we shift our perspective slightly closer to the east. Suppose I dare to suggest that we might be dealing with a potentially symbolic use of numbers here. That's going to bring with it its own set of unique problems. There are all kinds of symbolic numbers with various meanings. How do we know what the intended meaning is, given that the numbers lend themselves to all kinds of potential interpretations? Would the audience of scripture think the same way about numbers the way that I do? Do they think about the number 40 or the number 69 or the number 7? the way that we might. And we've also got to consider that there's likely some kernel of real historical truth somewhere in all of this. And if so, are we doing violence to the text by disregarding the natural sense of the numbers? Perhaps the numbers are part real and part symbolic. How do we know where the dividing line is? Whatever we think of the potential for symbolic interpretation, it would be unwise to ignore the fact that there are significant correlations between the Sumerian king list and the genealogy of Genesis 5 even if the exact nature of the relationship between them remains unclear at this point. So that's going to have to come into play at some point, even if we agree that the numbers may not be literal. So whatever these numbers may have in common between both documents, we may be dealing with potentially real and or symbolic interpretations that would need to be shared between two cultures and transmissible in whatever form they're found in. So we've had a look at a literal view of the data presented by Answers in Genesis, which suggests a scribal error for the discrepancy between the two manuscripts in question. This view makes no attempt to account for the long ages as presented in Genesis, but simply assumes them to be factual. However, it does at least present an attempt to account for the data that takes into consideration the Mesopotamian context of the composition of the primeval history. I should probably mention that we need to be careful that we're not getting confused between truth and facts. As far as ancient people were concerned, the priority in most forms of literature concerned truth rather than facts. It should be quite clear to anyone who picks up the primeval history that we're not reading some kind of attempt at preserving a historically accurate chronology. Why would you put the genealogy of Genesis 5 in between two stories? The broader context of Genesis is a narrative one. So logically, Genesis 5 forms part of the narrative structure. And as such, it is to be interpreted as narrative. That means that our interpretation of the text should be concerned with the messaging being presented by the author rather than the data. He's free to use data, of course, but the reason for doing that is to present a message. And our task is to understand that message, not to analyze the data scientifically as an end unto itself. 
as you can understand, this is a very complex issue and it's going to take us some time to chew through all of this information. And we have a lot more to consider before we can arrive at any decent conclusions here. So we're going to pick this up again next week and see if we can get closer to some meaningful understanding of the long ages of Genesis 5. All right. Well, I hope that it's going to be a bit more productive and uh, slightly less confusing than what we had this time. I think I need a rest from all the weird numbers and calculations. So let's talk about something simple now. It's time for answers to giant questions. Let's do some Q&A. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers.outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you with answers to your giant questions. We're kicking things off with our first question for season five. This question comes to us from our friend Joe, who is the uh, awesome host of the Commentarians podcast and one of the friendly guys at the Raven Creek Social Club. Tim, you and I made a uh, made an appearance once on his show. Yeah, that's right. We did a commentary on that Marvel movie, Eternals, and I was on the podcast with Joe sometime before that. We watched the Russell Crowe movie, Noah. We had a good chat about how it's a good movie of a Jewish story about Noah. Not a bad movie about the biblical story of Noah, but apparently that's still a bit of a hot take. Right. So we've got a bit of a history with Joe, and this isn't the first time that he sent in a question on this show either. Back in season two, Joe sent us a question about angels and demons. He definitely knows uh, when a question is right up our alley. He wants to know, have you heard of the Lovelock Cave Giants found in Nevada? I have indeed. Apparently in the early 1900s, a few men were searching a cave, and in that cave they found ancient human remains. The odd thing is a few of those bones belong to people who stood up to nine feet tall. This is particularly odd because they date back to 2000 BC when people are thought to be much shorter than today. Very few of these bones remain, but up till recently a museum had several skulls, old sandals and clothing that all seem to indicate they belong to very large people. Since then, they've been returned to the native tribes in the area. They were given a, a ritual burial. Stranger still, they had red hair, which is not what we'd expect from people in this region. Other reports from across the United States exist of people finding bones of seemingly giant people but no evidence exists of those findings. This is the only place where they have pictures and very recent examinations were held of the remaining artefacts and remains. So my giant question would be, this is what Joe says, what can we make of red-headed giants in the Americas 2,000 years ago? Just a random race of people who happened to be larger than average humans at the time and they died out. Could they be related to the giants we read about in the Bible? Could this be more myth than reality? Will we ever see little Timmy again? Tune in. Okay. Uh, yeah, all right, Joe. Well, thank you for that question. It's definitely one that's worth asking because it is something of a cultural phenomenon, particularly in the United States. But I don't think there's anyone who's interested in the study of the giants who hasn't heard about this find in the Lovelock Caves. I'm a bit short of time in this episode, so I won't go into any great detail. But since the question is focused on the possibility of connection to the biblical giants, I think we can just focus on that aspect because we don't really have the time to be getting into archaeology and all that kind of stuff. 
The main issue that we have in trying to establish any kind of connections to the biblical material is the plain and simple fact that the Bible does not concern itself with what happens to people who drop out of the focus of the biblical narrative. We have the conquest of Canaan, which was supposed to be a driving out of the giant clans from the Holy Land. Many of those resisted the push and ended up being destroyed in military campaigns. However, some of the giants were indeed driven out of the land and they simply got up and walked off the pages of Scripture. The Bible does not tell us where they went afterward. The Bible's not written about them. The Bible's the story of the people of God and the seed of the woman, not the seed of the serpent. What we do know about the giant clans is that they came about as a result of the Amorite religion practiced in Mesopotamia in the days of Nimrod. From there, populations of these giants spread back into Canaan and also Egypt. Some of these Egyptian giants made their way into Phoenicia and from there returned to Canaan by way of the sea. That's where guys like Goliath and his brothers came from. Therefore, both the origin and the ultimate destination of the giant clans was in the Holy Land. But as I say, some of them did succeed in surviving the conquest by fleeing from the Israelites and deserting the promised land. And as a starting point, it is interesting to note that these giants were known to be of Phoenician descent. So where did they go? It would probably be easier to ask where they didn't go, because there are stories of giants all over the ancient world in pretty much every direction from Jerusalem. Yeah, well, that's true. But but as far as the question of how we ended up with red-haired giants in America over 2,000 years ago, it is that red hair which gives us a clue. Most likely, they came just like the pilgrims did from the British Isles. Tales of red-haired giants come thick and fast from the mythology of the Celtic people. It wouldn't surprise me at all to find with their extensive knowledge of seafaring inherited from the ancient Phoenicians that they would have been able to make that voyage and also to bring with them certain artefacts that betray their heritage. Unfortunately, the many thousands of historical artefacts recovered from the Lovelock cave system suffered from a combination of sloppy handling, really poor archaeological practices, looting and pillaging, and squandering in the hands of entrepreneurial travellers. I'm afraid that whatever remains of the discoveries of the Lovelock caves, there really isn't enough known about those artefacts to be able to construct a detailed provenance of them. And that's a terrible shame because we may have lost a wonderful opportunity to be able to point back to the scriptures with authority and show the reliability of the biblical text from these finds. Nevertheless, the fact remains that the existence of these supersized remains is well attested by indigenous and colonial witnesses alike. Whether these remains could once have pointed the way back to the Holy Land or not, these findings in no way undermine the narrative presented by scripture. The giants of Lovelock Cave do not prove scripture, nor do they necessarily corroborate it, but there's a high degree of consistency with the biblical narrative when taken in conjunction with what we know from the stories of other people groups. So in this case, I think we ought to be prepared to entertain the idea that this could well be a myth that turns out to be true. Okay, so that brings us to the end of our first episode for Season 5 of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thanks again for that uh, great question, Joe. We'll be back next week with Episode 2, and we'll see if we can get a bit closer to cracking the mystery of the long ages of Genesis 5. We'll see you then. It's time to wrap up today's episode. 
But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. This podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by TJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more Answers to Giant Questions. Read the blog, catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless doing the prep for this yeah. season, Genesis 5 has been really hard. Um, it got a lot harder last night. Okay. Whereas uh, I came across some new research that suggests that one of the major premises that I had sort of taken for granted because a lot of people you know, scholars, academics, pastors and teachers take for granted and um, they're wrong. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, and I was wrong and I'm like, wow, well, that undoes a lot of things that I put a lot of work into and now I have to work even harder and with less time um, to fix it. <laughs> I haven't yawned all day, but when you ask me how I am, uh, I well, what? needed to yawn. It was a boring question. Um, now, why want to yawn? That's my gift to you. <laughs> You're um, horizontal and I'm... Uh, really? Not. I am not. I don't know how that is. No, it's, it, does, it doesn't matter. Just like you're this way and I'm that way. Wow, that's uh, frustrating but also enlightening at the same time, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's it's good to learn and it's good to... You know, one thing that I like about solid academic literature when it's done right is when they present information that you find contrary to your worldview or your understanding of things, it just feels good to set it straight. Mm. You know, it, it feels good to have someone actually show evidence of their work that supports their argument and be able to look at that for yourself. Mm. Every so often I get a royalty check come in from Amazon for book sales. And, oh, yes. And the the, um, the check had come in. It was just sitting there in my bank account. Then uh, a friend of mine said, oh, I'm doing a cancer fundraiser. You know, do, do you want to get involved? And I thought, well, you know, I've got this money sitting here that I wasn't budgeting anything for. So I donated some money and then um, she gave me a call the other day. She said, oh, you remember um, when you donated to my fundraiser? I said, yeah. She said, oh, well, um, 
I put your donation in as um, purchase of raffle tickets in the, okay. in the fundraising raffle. Right. I said, right. She goes, you won the major prize. I said, oh, it's, 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 it's meat. It's a lot of meat. I said, oh, okay. Uh, oh. So I won like one of those big meat packs that, oh, that that's awesome. was donated from the local butcher. Oh, cool. So it was like, um, I don't know, it's well over a hundred bucks worth of meat. Wow, nice. Um, well, that goes well to a uh, family of yeah, wife. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Was, uh, very, um, very pleased with that. <laughs> nice little question. Mm. He who is generous, generous, shall reap meat. It's an own proverb. Uh, awesome. Yes, I've got that proverb. I've got that highlighted in my Bible. Got a bag of rocking horse manure to sell you at a great price. Okay, interesting. 